Good morning to you, John. Good morning, Fran. How are you? I'm very well indeed. You're going to talk to us about the three wise men today, John. <laughs> Executors, well, thinking, trustees and guardians. Yeah, I was thinking, I was thinking about it this morning and I thought to myself, that's very non-PC to become three wise men because obviously you can have your point, men or women. Yeah, before I talk about that, Fran, there's something I was talking about there a couple of weeks ago that suddenly hit the... Uh, case law on the 1st of April, no, no, hopefully no, nothing significant about that it was on the 1st of April. There was a judgment of the High Court. And it dealt with what we have been talking about the week before last, I think, uh, cohabitation agreements and our um, co-ownership agreements. I, I'm a kind of a, I think we started, I think, the new year and we said, uh, I, I was certainly trying to get the point across that where it's where at all possible, you tr should try and commit everything to it. So you should try to have an agreement. If you're living with somebody, you should have an agreement. You know, if yeah. you're buying an asset with somebody, you should have an agreement. If you're buying, you know, if you're doing anything, it's always very good to put it in writing and have it signed up. So be it a prenup, post-nup, separation, you know, cohabitation mm -hmm. or a co-ownership agreement. A co-ownership is the one where... And it's becoming, it, it's happening more, if you like, or has happened more in the, in the recent past, where people actually buy a house together as a couple, don't subsequently get married, may even live together in the house and for a period of time, and then things don't work out for them. And then you're into a situation where what happens in terms of the house and, you know, could it, can it be sold, would it not be sold? And the whole area of cohabitation agreements falls right into that. And the whole area of um, ownership or co-ownership agreements falls into that as well. And people would often come into us and we'd say, well, look, you know, as well as buying it and putting it in joint names, you should also have a co-ownership agreement that sets out what happens if. Now, <clears throat> and if somebody was to pass away or if somebody, if the if the agreement was, you know, if the relationship was to end, what would you do in that scenario? And that's exactly what happened in the case of Geraldine McGran and Kieran O'Glu, whatever that is, I wonder if that's four or two or something, but anyway, a couple that were living together bought a house together, put the house into joint names, and the house, they bought the house for, say, 70,000 or so, they lived together as a couple over a period of time, over quite a number of years, from 95 until 2015, so do, do your sons on that, that's quite a while, and uh, had, a, had a son during that time, both of them had children or a child from a previous relationship. They went abroad, they came home, they bought the house, etc., etc. And then, unfortunately, towards the end, in 2015, they broke up. And having broken up, they then uh, have, were the subject. The reason that they came to my attention is that they went through the High Court on a row about the, about the house um, and uh, who owned what and how much, et cetera, et cetera, of the house, which if you think about it and you start at the end and you think about the cost that was involved in that, so you have a high court action, walk it out yourself between the two of them, I would imagine they would get very little change out of 50,000 euro wow. plus that, plus mm. this, plus that, plus the other. So you can take that off, whatever they're going to sell the house for and then throw in the emotional distress and all the other difficulties and you know fall out vis-a-vis -vis the family and 
possibly the sun, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. So think of all, think of all the cost of all of this row, which could have been so easily um, remedied or fixed with um, a cohabitation agreement number one, or and or a co-ownership agreement, because both of them could have done it. So when they bought day one, they could have entered into an agreement that would have locked down what would happen if. And if they didn't do that, they could have done it subsequently at any stage during the relationship. They could have entered into a cooperation agreement and that agreement could have specified. So, you know, and I mean, obviously within our system, if you get married, you've got the the benefit, if you like, of the legislation behind you, all the family law legislation. And now you also have the benefit of the cohabitation Mm. legislation as well. Problem here, of course, is that this appears to fall between the cracks insofar as the new act uh, applied. But obviously, and I'm, I'm saying obviously, and I shouldn't be saying obviously because the only basis of which I think that it might have fallen out of the the legislation is that the time might run out yeah, because yeah. one of the things that is very critical to understand is that if you if you know previously if you have an agreement the agreement will always stand if you don't have an agreement you can fall back on the cohabitation act but a bit like falling back on the succession act if you don't make a will you have no say on what that fallback position is and you're also subject to time limits. Uh, So obviously in a cohabitation situation, if you don't take action within two years of the end of the relationship, then you can't get the benefit of the legislation. So that's exactly what happened. All right, okay. But it doesn't matter how far back the relationship goes then. That's not what's affected. It's it's the period within which you've you've actually sought to do something about this. Is that it? Two things. First of all, you're half right and half wrong, whichever way you want to look at it. Story of my life, John. (laughs) (laughs) It's two years. I refuse to comment on that. It's two years from the end of the relationship for you to do anything about the end of the relationship, in other words. So you can't, if two years passes and you've done nothing about it, you can't bring, you can't look for any remedy for the court, from the court. And also, by the way, you can't look for a remedy from the court uh, in a breakup situation unless you can establish financial dependency. So that's another, uh, if you're a stumbling block, Mm. that will not, but it would mean you can't. So that could have been the other reason that they weren't able to do it. But obviously the other thing as well, by the way, so just for completeness here, the other thing as well to remember is that as well as having to be, there are kind of three kind of hurdles to get over uh, if you want to look them, at them that way. But I was thinking horse jumping over fences. But the first fence you've got to get over is it's got to be committed and into a relationship. Mm. Uh, the second one is you've got to live together. The third one is that you have to be living together for five years if there are no children and two years if there are children. So there's this. Two, three that you've got to get over okay. before you get within the ambit of the legislation. But in this particular, I mean, and I think it's always, I don't know, uh, interesting that these cases do come to light, uh, you know. Uh, Inevitably, you're going to have a situation where somebody isn't going to be able to bring the act into play. And this kind of, this particular case kind of highlights something that I've been saying for some time now, you know, that if you're buying property, whether 
it's in a uh, an intimate and committed relationship situation or in a business relationship situation, you should always have an agreement. You should always have what we call a co-ownership agreement. Mm. Too, too many people rely on, and it's not criticism, but it's a fact, too many people rely on the fact, I should look through, we get all well together yeah. and everything's fine yeah. and there'll be no problem here, which is true as long as um, that remains to be the case. And the funny thing is that this case, not so funny for the people involved, but the, the, the thing in this particular case is that's exactly what happened, mm. is that, and it often, funny, it's something I remember struck me very forcibly during a family law case that I was involved in when I was cross-examining somebody. And you could see in their mind that, and it was very clear on the answering that you got, that I got to the questions, was very clear that as far as they were concerned, in their head, Whatever might have been okay while they were in a relationship and in love with this person, you know, there was one set of ground rules. But as far as they were concerned, the minute you stepped over, the relationship is now over. The ground rules suddenly completely changed. And in this particular situation, the judge said that that's what the couple, well, one of the couple was asking him to do in this case. They were asking him to apply a kind of a hybrid test. One one bit of the test was, well, okay, we I accept that when we bought the house, we put it into our joint names. I accept, in fact, what they did in this case was they made a will and they left the house to each other, which they, strictly speaking, didn't need to do because they had also put the house in joint names. Now, putting the house in joint names, a lot of people out there will go in, buy, it, buy a property with somebody and be asked, do you want to put it in joint names? And say, they'll say, yeah, okay, so yeah, of course we do, yeah. Uh, not understanding possibly the kind of, the, the subtlety of putting something into joint names because when you put something into joint names, you can either put it into joint names, which means uh, A and B own the property, so like a tax, uh, I used to have a fellow who used to be cheating the tax. He was always talking about A to B to C, with a remainder to D, and I used to be getting totally confused about A, B, and C. But anyway, if I buy a property with my wife and we put it into joint names, I'm going to be asked the question, do you want to put it into joint names? There's two types of, of ownership in that situation. There's what we call a joint tenancy and tenancy in common. Joint tenancy means survivor gets all. So if my business manages to... Uh, get lose me at some stage, she will get the entire property. If, on the other hand, we put it into tenants in common, both of us have a kind of a an agreed share in the property, so therefore both of us, if you like, own it and own our bit in the property. Right. We can give that bit to whomsoever we like. But a lot of people just simply put it into joint names who will stop in the story. And that's what happened here. And that's why at the end of the day, in 2017, or 2020, I should say, on the first day of April, a judge was sitting there going, okay, so it's in joint names, but what does that mean? Because you haven't told us either when you started by way of an agreement, a co-ownership agreement, or you haven't told us by way of a cohabitation agreement as to what you mean by that. So they spent however many days in the High Court arguing about contributions I paid they paid 50-50 on the deposit, but one of them argued, well, I paid an extra two grand. Then they argued about the fact that, well, I earned more than you, even though we had two joint accounts, and my my wages went into this account, and your wages went into that account, but my wages were higher than yours, so 
therefore I should be getting more of a share of it. And then we had a situation where one of them said, well, I inherited money and I put X money into it. And the other one said, well, I inherited money and I put oh, so much money into it. what a shame, yeah. And, yeah. and they spent the entire time yeah. at the end. Now, so what happens to you at the end of it? Mm. So at the end of it, without getting into the, the, the nice area of promissory estoppel, mm. uh, discretionary trusts, resulting trusts, and all that kind of stuff, basically what the judge said was, look, you look to the intention of the parties throughout the relationship. And if you look at it, they went in, they bought, put in joint names, they made a well leading to each other, they had two joint accounts, both of whom used it all the time. They paid the mortgage, they paid the household, they lived as a unit throughout all of that time. Okay, so now they've separated and within that period of, you know, 2015, for the, for the last five years, of the 20-some-odd years, the attitude changed. But in fact, they did nothing, you know, throughout that entire period of time they were operating as a unit. So he decided, surprise, surprise, that it was a 50-50 exercise. Because one of the parties, and I won't say who, anybody who wants to read the judgment can find it out very easily, Geraldine or whether Kieran, which of the ones who are arguing the task, one of them was arguing that, well, actually, if you look at the sums on this, I should I, lo- I should be getting 80% and uh, the other one should only get 20%. The judge said, no, it's 50-50. He sold it. But the story, the, like the fable story, the end of the matter really is that if they had done an agreement, if they had done a cohabitation agreement, or if they had done a co-ownership agreement, they wouldn't have any of this. There wouldn't, there wouldn't be this issue. And yeah. uh, the other thing you would have to say is, you wonder if they ever try and mediate because of the... You know, well, I was just going to say that to you, because I mean, if they had yeah. done that uh, beforehand, they would have saved themselves such, such an amount of money. Yeah. They would, but then again, I suppose if somebody was convinced or being yeah. convinced yeah, course, that yeah. they should have been more than that. Just the, the only anyway. question of what you said to me there was the, the two-year period within which you have to, to make your case. Um, mm. but, but the wording that worries me is the end of a relationship, because I'm sure there's, there's sorts of, um, uh, I mean, how would you determine when exactly a relationship ends, for example, you know? Why? Well, they always ask me these tricky ones. Well, it's just, it would be uh, ambiguous, wouldn't it? No, well, it, it may not be ambiguous because, and I'm going to take a flyer here without looking at the legislation, which anybody in the office would kill me for because I'm always <laughs> telling them, look at the legislation. I would be saying that my my understanding of it is the ending of the relationship when they cease to cohabit. All right, okay. Do you follow me? It's not the well, end of the relationship. Even though people could be cohabiting and, and, and the relationship could well be over, but, but you're saying to correct, when somebody correct. moves out, is that it? it it's the cohabitation. It's, ah. it's called the Cohabitation okay. Act. Okay. So the critical part to it is the cohabitation. It's the living together. Okay. So, for example, that, that recent case that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago where the, they were living together, the big debate was that he spent a huge amount of time abroad and therefore they weren't actually living together. And therefore the judge, what the judge did there was he kind of discounted maybe 10 years of their relationship because they weren't actually living together for that period of time. So it's the living together. Uh, it's very the cohabitation that triggers it. Okay. Now, I could, be, I could be wrong and somebody might correct me on that, but that, that I think is the fundamental element to it. Right. So, And you're right, for obvious reasons. You can imagine the row you'd have with that if it was a question of arguing when did the relationship end. 
Um, one of our listeners on to say, could John Lynch please help me? I have a legal separation for 20 years, not divorced, was married for 18 years. Can I claim a portion of my husband's retirement pension? Very good question. Very good question. Um, first of all, just start, start back at the basics on that, right? You're separated for a period of... For 20 long, years. Uh, 20 years. Not divorced. You, you, yeah, entered into an agreement, a separation agreement at the time. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming, let's assume it was at the time. So the question there, that's the, the legal question is, will a court revisit a separation agreement? after 20 years on an application to it for divorce. And here's the real side shimmy answer to you. What the court is obliged to do as a matter of kind of law and as a matter of constitutional entitlement is they have to look to the separation agreement and the circumstances of the parties at the time that they're making their their case for divorce, if you know what I mean. And if, if they decide that there wasn't proper provision or there isn't proper provision for the parties at that point in time, they will change or, if you like, varied separation agreement. There was a long, long list of cases uh, over the, when divorce came in, as you can very well imagine, there was a huge amount of people, or significant amount of people, who had had done exactly that. They had separated, either factually separated and gone their separate ways and done nothing, or actually entered into agreements during the intervening period or immediately afterwards. And the question that the court courts had to face at that stage is, well, we now got divorced, or in that in you had divorce and judicial separation, but let's just leave it at divorce. You had divorce. What are we going to do about these historical ones? And there was a very famous case, famous insofar as it was well known to lawyers who were involved in family law, where the husband had been separated from the husband and wife had been separated for 15, 20 years. He'd gone off to America, was uh, hugely successful in the States, remarried uh, in some Haiti or someplace, in other words, didn't come back to Ireland mm. because you couldn't, you couldn't have got a divorce at that stage, remarried, had another family and uh, had entered into a separation agreement, had divided everything equally at the time. So the argument was, we entered into a separation agreement 20 years ago. I gave my wife half, all of hers, I think. I've been supporting her ever since. And then the argument came back in that Eddie was now 60, 65, 70 years of age. And uh, he was hugely wealthy. What was the court going to do? Was the court going to revisit the separation agreement or was it not? And the court did revisit the separation agreement and made substantial payments to the wife based on the overriding principle that they had to ensure that proper provision was being mm. made in all of the circumstances for the spouse. Now, just, uh, I'm, I'm just going to stop this roll now in a second, but that also had the other scenario where somebody got a judicial separation, say two or three years previously, and then two or three years on, get a divorce, and the courts were revisiting the judicial separation at the divorce. So you had you had those two issues that became very prevalent. And then about five years ago, the Supreme Court revisited the whole area of what they called the second bite, the cherry, very inelegant and very non-descriptive, mm. which way you look at it. But the courts revisited that, and the court said, well, hold on a second. 
because it was been a, it was an almost an automatic rebuild for about periods of ten years because there was such a you remember that lovely Celtic tiger we had things where people were going from you know hugely different yeah. circumstances and in those cases it was much more easy to deal with because you could see it was a situation where uh, you know one of the parts would be hugely successful very wealthy and would have a significant pension or significant assets and the other party would have none so the courts found didn't find it too difficult in those scenarios to say well wait a second that's not proper provision that doesn't take into account the relate the, the wife's for example commitment to the family uh, the wife's commitment to the husband's career and all that so they had a huge difficulty with that the Supreme Court wrote it back ever so slightly uh, you know, however many years ago, and they stopped the second bite in between judicial separation and divorce. But, but in the case of separation agreements that are long-standing like that, yes, the courts will relook at the situation, mm. and it may very well be very long-winded response to your listener. Mm. It may very well be that the court would look at it, but you couldn't answer that question without getting all of the right. information. But if, if the court answer. accepted that the provision for the wife in the first place was acceptable, she doesn't have any demands then on, on the Correct. guys. Correct. Is, is, if, is that fair to say? Correct. If the court at the time of the divorce, looking at all the circumstances, says uh, because again, just a small little thing on that was there was a there was two big long lines of arguments that went to the Supreme Court you know, with, with two different judges taking two different approaches in the High Court. When it went to the Supreme Court, uh, the classic example was the husband and wife uh, went their separate ways, entered into an agreement. There were substantial assets. She got half the substantial assets. He got the other half. He became very wealthy. She didn't do so well. She, she made very bad investments. She came back in again saying, I think I'm not being properly provided for. The court said, no, you are, you were, and you were properly provided for at the time, and therefore we're not going to make any adjustment. That was what kind of ultimately held sway, but you've got to bear in mind that that's in what we would call, you know, very substantial cases. In your run-of-the-mill case, you're not going to be looking at that type of scenario. In the run-of-the-mill case, the court will be looking at it and say, well, look, look, you know, if, if we if both parties have accommodation needs sorted, if both parties, you know, have their own houses, uh, if both if maintenance has been paid over the period of time. Uh, however, if there was no provision made for pension, uh, the courts will certainly look at that. And the reason that they look at it, by the way, and again, I I I, I hasten to add that you have to look at the particular circumstances. But the reason that the court will look at that is that when they were when we were doing separation agreements, and when you do do a separation agreement, you can't deal with a pension. In other words, you can only deal with pensions through the courts. So hence, you had a situation where a lot of separation agreements didn't actually cover pensions, and right. you you didn't have a, an enforcement situation. So pensions are a big exception from that point of view. Well, we did not run response. No, no, I'm sure it's necessary because it's, it sounds complex enough from time to time. We started out uh, thinking that we would deal with the three wise men yeah, of executors, yeah. trustees, and guardians, so we'll have to postpone it until they're on the road. On, on the road back. <laughs> Look the for the North Star and all of that. <laughs> all right, listen, John, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank okay. you. Bye bye. You know.